Welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. I'm Todd. And today we have a very special guest. Very special to me, anyway. It's my dad, Jim Higgins. You want to say hi? My name's Jim. Hi. <laughs> hey, Jim. <laughs> well, I've been trying to get my dad to come do this uh, with us for a while, and it's not like I had to pull his leg or anything. I mean, he... Uh, he agreed to do it right away. We just haven't gotten around to it till now, and I'm excited to have him here in honor of our special guest. Uh, I guess I really kind of picked the movie. I mean, we, t- <laughs> we talked about it, but we picked Pet Cemetery because this was the first horror movie I think that my dad took me to. Um, just just he and I when uh, when I was a kid. So wait, you saw this in the theaters? Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. And this movie <laughs> and this movie came out in um, 1989, which means I was 10 years old, and I, I saw that it was released on April 21st. So I had just turned 10 years old. So what were you thinking, taking a 10 year old to this movie? <laughs> That's kind of what I want to know. <laughs> well, kind of what I was thinking. I mean, I, I've always been an avid horror movie fan. And I've watched watched them all my life. From I remember when I was probably Craig's age back then. When, when I was ten, we'd watch the old Werewolf and Dracula and Frankenstein. Those were the scary movies back in the day. But as as time progressed, the uh, the movies have evolved, you know, quite a bit since since then. But Craig and I started watching horror movies like the Werewolf, Frankenstein, when he was probably, oh, I'd guess six years old, yeah, five, six really. years old. Yeah. And we kind of moved on after that. I'd show, we'd show an old Werewolf movie where the transformation was pretty funny now that you look back on it watching that. But we'd watched Werewolf in London where the transformation <laughs> was just, I mean, it was scary. <laughs> I remember that. That was at your brother Chris's apartment that right. we watched that. Right. And um, I, I think that I wasn't really even supposed to be watching it. I think that you guys tried to send me off into another room, but I kept coming back in, and eventually you just kind of let me hang out. I, but I, I remember that. That is a great transformation scene. Yeah, it was a transformation yeah. scene. And from there, you just evolved. He, kind of, you know, he, he made it through that that movie and and we'd watch friday the 13th movies and the halloween and it's got up to uh, when this came out when stephen king and and i love stephen king when that pet cemetery came out i read the book i thought then it came out in a movie and i thought man this is gonna be great and so i took craig and that was probably for me to see you know bringing a 10 year old i didn't think anything about it because we've been watching horror movies for for years but there's no hardly no other kids in there (laughs) (laughs) and i remember oh about halfway through the movie craig just stands up says i gotta go for a minute (laughs) he walked out (laughs) and i thought well what do i do stay here and finish watching the movie or or what? But he and he was stayed gone for five, five, ten minutes, and then he came back in. Really? Didn't say a word, but he was all right. I don't know. Yeah. Do Maybe. you remember where that was in the movie? Well, I, I do. It <laughs> was yeah. It was actually it was nearer to the end. I think I got through most of it. And you know, we'll talk a little bit about about, about the plot or whatever. But this is, this movie's <laughs> old enough. I assume most of you've probably seen it. Towards the end. There's a pretty infamous uh, scene where one of the characters, Achilles Tendon, gets sliced. Mm. And I, that was just it for me. <laughs> that was when you left. That was when I oh, left. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he remembers me coming back. I don't remember coming back. I, I remember <laughs> I remember sitting out there in the lobby. This was a, an old theater that's gone now here in our little hometown. And uh, they really didn't even have a lobby to speak of. You know, I just was just kind of sat in the floor <laughs> against the wall and waited. And I guess maybe eventually I went back. Again, but 
Oh, man, yeah. It was... And I'm sure, you know, I, I tease you, I rib you for taking a 10-year-old or whatever. I'm sure I begged to go. You know, I was really into this stuff. Oh, yeah, he was into it. Yeah, so uh, I thought I had a really cool dad who would, you know, take me to these yeah. types of things. So, so was, this was your first horror movie that you went to the theater to see. Well, now, I don't remember exactly, because I know that, I think... The three of us, me and my mom and dad, I think we had gone to see Gremlins, and we that maybe came out oh, okay. a, f- a few years before yeah, this. I did. But you know, we've talked about this before. That was kind of billed as like a family, family movie, film, yeah. Um, and this was it, not, yeah. And it, it, you know, it was a little goofy, but it was scary, and I got scared in that one too. But um, this one was the ch- first real horror movie that uh, I don't know if it was the first R-rated movie I'd seen, but this is the the one that really stuck with me. Now, Jim, you said you read the book before. Yes, I did. Are you, you read a lot of Stephen King? I read, yeah, probably about all of his. Yeah, me too. His his works, and yeah, they're all good. They're yeah, good. they are. And I'm a huge fan of Stephen King too. And this, uh, I, I hadn't read the book. I was too young, I think, <laughs> to have read the book. But I, I read it recently, just this last summer, actually. And I was really looking forward to it because usually the book is so much better than the movie. And I wasn't disappointed because it was still a good book, but I was amazed at really how close the movie is. I mean, it's a really direct adaptation of the novel. It really is, although it is a simple... It's a simple story. Yeah. I mean, compared to uh, you know a lot of films that get made from movies, sometimes the book's so much better because the book has so much more depth and more, it's complexity. more, com- and more mm-hmm. characters and there are subplots and things and... Uh, as I remember, because I read the book too, uh, yeah, you're right. What you see is what you get. And this, the story, really, even in the book, revolves just around this very small cast of characters. Yeah, right. Again, it's it's not that complex of a story. And, and really what it all boils down to, and I don't, of course I didn't get this when I was a kid, but the whole movie really is just about how we deal with and process death. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's there's kind of a heavy-handed theme that death is a natural thing. It's not something to fear. It's not something to be sad about. And it's something that we just have to accept and move on. And if you can't accept it and move on, then that's destructive and there's going to be bad stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. Um so the setup is this, uh, you know, fairly young family. Lewis and Rachel are the couple. Lewis is a doctor. They're moving to Maine with their two small kids, rural Maine, and their daughter, Ellie, who I would guess is maybe like eight, something, yeah. nine, ten maybe, and their young son, Gage, who seems to be somewhere between two and three. He's really young, really small. Um, Gage is played by Miko Hughes. I think this was his first movie, mm. um, and then he went on to be really pretty big in the sitcoms and stuff in the 80s and did a couple more horror movies too he was the kid in uh, New Nightmare that's right yeah yeah very recognizable child actor. oh yeah absolutely Those super big, super blue cute eyes, kid super cute when you need some cute kid to then turn evil this is the one you want <laughs> right <laughs> so they move into this house in rural Maine it's right alongside this big highway and as soon as they get there you know they start to unpack I guess the movie opens really in the pet cemetery. Mm-hmm. That's the first scene. It kind of just eerily goes around. There's this eerie music playing, and um, you can see all the different uh, like child-made tombstones and whatnot, which is cool. Yeah, it is kind of cool. Along with the child singing and the la 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 yeah. la with the creepy music <laughs> underneath. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can hear the children's voices reading the epitaphs and stuff. It's it's really kind of neat. But then it cuts to the family, and they're arriving and. Ellie runs off, uh, there's a tire swing, she starts swinging in that, and right away immediately notices this path leading into the forest, and she, the the swing falls, and she's 
not really hurt, but, you know, kids freak out. And so she's crying, and the parents run over to her, and the little boy, Gage, starts to walk towards the highway. And we see kind of from an aerial shot that he's walking towards the highway, and there's this big semi-truck coming. Um, and this is, like, the third, probably the third semi-truck we've seen barrel down yeah, this highway. Like, right. <laughs> because they cut right after the cemetery yeah. scene to the semi looks like it's going about 60 miles an hour <laughs> coming right at coming, you yeah coming right at right you. over yeah coming over you it's almost yeah. like a foreshadowing of the shot that right. we get later with it with gage getting hit right and that's what's so economical about this movie yeah. this movie is very economical within the first five minutes we have peril peril yeah peril we can see this that this road has these semis barreling forward and then she falls off the swing and he almost gets hit by the mm-hmm. car but he's saved by the neighbor by the neighbor judd who is fred gwynn who is probably most people know uh, as herman munster um i'm sorry i just can't watch him without thinking car 54 where are you one of those two yeah yeah oh gosh and and it takes you right back to his old classic characters but it's also really kind of cool to see his face you know in this modern horror movie you know modern for us back then i don't remember you know i watched the monsters when i was a kid and i watched car 54 as well yeah yeah and so it makes me smile every time I see him. And yeah. he's got kind of this old movie star presence that you don't really see anymore. He's kind of, you know, that a man's man, rugged. and yeah. uh, but, but he's got folksy. a... Folksy. Folksy, yeah. He, he reminds me a lot of uh, my grandpa, Harvey. Um, my dad's father-in-law. Just a country guy, a nice, nice country guy. Well, and you know, this is where I thought the casting was good compared to the book. I remember reading the book, and the one thing that really hit... I think he was the strongest character in the book. Yeah. And probably the stronger, strongest character in this film. You know, he would always say, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. All in, and, and I'm reading the A-Y-U-H, and I just didn't know how to really uh, vocalize that uh-huh. when I was reading it, but he does a good job in this film. He says it a few times. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's great. Country and- boy. So he saves the kid, you know, just in the nick of time. He sweeps in and, and pulls him out. But then that's when he tells them, you know, you got to be careful of this highway. Uh, it's it's bad, you, you know. Which is <clears throat> interesting. He tells them that the highway's bad, but he says it pretty much in regards to the cat. Yeah. Which I thought was a little strange, considering the fact that he just saved his son from the highway. And you'd think that if you're warning somebody about the highway being so bad, you'd say, you want to watch your little boy, who I just, by the way, picked up. <laughs> right. You know, instead he's like, well, you got to get that cat fixed, because yeah. you don't want that cat wandering too right. far, and right. blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah, and, and so, you know, they have their general introductions. It's funny that you say that, because I was thinking, you know, this house, it's it's seated on this beautiful picaresque, you know, plot of land. Um, but I was noticing in the background there was, like, a big lake. I'm thinking, man, could they have picked, like, a more dangerous place to live with these two little kids? Like, did they not even consider the fact that this major highway, like, goes right through their front yard? You can drown back here, or you can fall from the tire swing up here, or you can get run over by a truck over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to even go from there. Well, I guess he's a doctor. Right. And so uh, after they're, they're getting settled in the house, and there's some discussion with Ellie about the cat, and I think it's the talk of the highway and getting Ellie fixed that... <laughs> getting the cat fixed, the not cat. Ellie. <laughs> church. Church is church the cat. Church is the cat. Winston Churchill, church for short. And they talk about getting the cat fixed, and so in the context of this and why they're getting the cat fixed, Ellie starts asking about okay. death. Daddy... What if church dies? 
What if he dies and has to go to the pet cemetery? Honey, church will be fine. No, he won't. Not in the end. In the end, he's going to croak, isn't he? Lovey. Church might still be alive when you're in high school, and that's a very long time. It doesn't seem long to me. It seems short. Well, if it was up to me, I'd let church live to be a hundred, but I don't make up the rules. Oh, who does? God, I suppose. But he's not God's cat, he's my cat. But God gets only if he wants one, not mine. Not mine. It's interesting because you would think that a kid that kid is not so young that you couldn't talk more frankly about death with, but he is a little evasive. I mean, you don't want to give these kind of assurances to a kid that every oh yeah, don't worry, every church is going to live really really long time, especially when you were just right. <laughs> you were just confronted with this possibility that he might not. Um, he or she was it a he? The cat is a boy. Yeah. Is a boy might not. A boy. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because then later on, because he's getting it to take to be fixed, she wants to know if church is going to be fine during the surgery. Right. And he's then reluctant to give her any reassurance. I mean, it was a weird dichotomy to me. Yeah, right, I thought it was right. a little. I thought it was a little poor in the writing. I, and I don't know what they were trying to do there, but the mother immediately jumps in as, "Well, why don't you give him some? Give her a promise. Don't shilly shally. Give the little girl a promise. Right." I don't know. It made me think maybe there was some backstory in the family that just doesn't get touched on. Well, I don't remember the book that well. Yeah, I mean, there's it, they do touch on it a little bit. The the mom death is a really touchy subject for her. You see that in the movie. I remember it being more emphasized in book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a co- topic she's comfortable with. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to expose the kids to it. And she explains why later. But you know, during all of this time, Judd. Explains to Lewis that what's down at the end of that path is a pet cemetery, and he says we'll go down there sometime. And he does. He takes them down there, like on a little family day trip, and they go down. And Ellie's kind of fascinated, um, but the mom is clearly uncomfortable. I told you it's a bad road, Lewis. It's killed a lot of pets. Made a lot of kids unhappy. At least something good come of it. This place couldn't plant nothing but corpses here anyway. I guess. How can you call it a good thing? A graveyard for pets killed in the road, built by broken-hearted children. Well, they have to learn about death somehow, now don't they, Ms. Creed? Why? It comes across a little overwrought, the drama does. Yeah. I, I think if we had gotten a little more of her backstory earlier on in the film, if we had known a little bit more about her, this wouldn't seem so out of place. But you, she does seem awfully touchy and just seems awfully dramatic early on with I, these things. Right, right. And and that point, you know, that you brought up about where the dad really didn't seem to have any problem assuring, you know, the child that, hey, this cat's going to live until you're in high school Uh and graduate. But then he really had a problem trying to assure her that the cat was going to make it through the surgery. And I I just thought, well, okay, he's a physician. Mm -hmm. He knows what can happen, possibly with with anesthetic or whatever. You put the cat under. Maybe that was the clue. Yeah, but it was very noticeable, that kind of dichotomy there. there. And I was thinking maybe that's because it was a nature versus man kind of thing. Uh He had control, maybe. There's some control in the medical, but on the nature side, well, but it's... 
but to me again it was opposite because yeah. you really don't have any control over okay right. truck comes around the corner and that's an accident where you have more control in the medical field that and he was <laughs> had no problem giving her assurance right. something that was beyond their control right. and, hey the cat's gonna live well, well, I think you're right. I guess that's kind of where your mind is, right? Yeah. If and, you're a doctor. You're well, right. and, I, and as a parent, too. I mean, I'm sure that's hard as a parent. to You want to provide comfort and reassurance, but you also have to try to balance that with reality. And I can understand why that would be a struggle. I think maybe some of the stuff with the mom, too. She is my least favorite cast yes. uh, in this. I remember in the book, she, she was described as being really beautiful. And not to say this woman's not beautiful. She's striking in her own way. But I wouldn't necessarily say pretty. And, and she was neurotic in, in the book, too. But I feel like I almost had a little bit more sympathy for her. In this, she kind of comes across as cold and weak. She does. Um, yeah. <clears throat> like, she needs to be taken care of and, and mollified. And I'm not a big fan of the actress's performance uh, here. No, I agree with you. It's not the strongest. And it, it just makes their relationship weird. And maybe it's supposed to be weird. Again, we don't really know enough. We don't have enough backstory to know why. So it, you just kind of wonder... Because she kind of goes off on him there uh, for a second. And then she walks out the door as he's packing up the cat and is like, well, everything's fine. Yeah, we're still friends, right? And I mean, I've been married for a while, so I mean, that sort of thing does pretty much happen daily. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Agreed, that does happen, but but you're right. It's it's the things that she kind of went off on, you know, that that, that would upset her, which which kind of surprised me. And again, like Craig said, we don't know the by watching the movie what really her background is, what it is in her past. We know she's real close to her family. Her parents are pretty domineering. His parents aren't talked about at all, his family. Yeah. And his idea was it to move to the rural? Was that to get away from her? Her family, right. or was that? Mm. Her yeah, idea? and that is that is explored more in the book too. They, there's always the, the her parents didn't want her to marry Lewis because Lewis was poor and just you know they were living like on a mattress in some crappy college oh, apartment okay. and whatnot. He was never going to be good enough for their little girl. And even now that he has become a doctor and is very successful, still not good. Enough. That's yeah, and that's the weird thing when you see a movie and you don't have that backstory. You think, well, there's a doctor who would be upset about. About their well, child right, marrying right. a doctor, right. uh, you know, in that right. regard, anyway. Right. You think, well, there's got to be some character flaw. Maybe he's just a horrible person. Right. <laughs> but he never comes across that way no, at all. No. So, yeah. While they're in the cemetery, Judd says something. Um, he, he's talking to the little girl, and he's real cute. You know, he's a very <laughs> grandfatherly figure. Do you know what a graveyard really is? Well, I guess not. It's a place where the dead speak no not right out loud their stones speak or their markers this ain't a scary place Ellie it's a place of rest and speaking can you remember that yes sir I guess it's worth mentioning that all of this is based on stuff from King's life. At some point he moved his family to a rural main uh, home right alongside a highway. The daughter's cat got hit by a car, which we haven't got to, but we'll get to. And uh, his own young son, Joe Hill, who is an author in his own right now, uh, at one point ran out into the road as a truck was approaching and almost got hit. Oh my and, goodness! Um, there was a pet cemetery down a path behind their house. Okay. And, and there was <laughs> and there was an old guy who lived across the street. So he based all of this in his own reality, except for in his life. 
his his son did not get hit, and but in in the movie, the son eventually does. Well, that explains a lot because this is a very unique set it of does. circumstances it here. It does. I mean, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, you know, I was aware that Stephen King himself got hit. Yeah, you know, yeah, by a car, like a bu- um, like a van or something. A van. Many years later, <clears throat> many years later. And the reason I brought that up is we were talking about the cemetery. The uh, the Stephen King's daughter's cat who got hit and killed was named Smucky. And in both the book and the movie, there's you can see a tomb. Uh, one of the in the graveyard is is smucky Smucky. right so that you know they leave whatever and then i think the next thing we get to is lewis's first day on the job and he works todd said when we were watching this that's a weird hospital (laughs) it Um, looks like a high school (laughs) well i I think that it's supposed to be like a university clinic oh okay that's what it was in the book and so i assume that's what it's supposed to be here where like the um operating what what looked like a a small type uh small procedure type operating room right right across from the entrance (laughs) right right exactly (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't understand the setting, but now that you talk about it, I remember him saying like it's a college. Yeah, oh, so that's I don't know right. if that's kind of like the health center. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Thinking. You know, or whatever. What I'm thinking. But I was I was confused like Todd went, oh, where are all these kids coming from? I thought this was a hospital. Right. I thought were they all with him when he got hit or it's the, well the I think a bunch of them were. I think yeah. it was it was like a, a marathon or something. This kid was running and he got hit by by a truck by a truck, um, <laughs> which is the number one cause of death in this community. Maybe. Right. <laughs> so they, they should move the highway. They should really talk about a bypass. Yeah, or something. absolutely. <laughs> Um, so this kid gets brought in, you know, he's all messed up. His head is all bashed in. It's pretty gross. And it's obvious that there's not going to be anything they can do for him there. But he's pretty much DOA anyway. So Now, he was dead, right? Yeah. Because he closes his eyes. Right. He was dead. This, this kid, his name is Pascal. I don't remember what his first name is. But he dies... And as everybody else kind of clears the room, Lewis is sitting alone in there with him. And I think Lewis says something to him. I don't know. Oh, um, he says, I was, I was supposed to only deal with scrapes or something today. Right. Um, I promised my wife it was only going to be broken bones and skin knees. Yeah. But he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, this dead kid kind of, not all the way sits up, but opens his eyes and kind of jerks uh, around a little bit. And starts speaking to him in, in a very low, scary voice. Um, and he says, uh, the soul of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. And then he says, I'll come to you. Victor. Yeah, Victor, Pascal. Victor. Absolutely. Very good. So I guess it's just that night, right? He's laying in bed with his wife. Lewis is laying in bed with Rachel. And he hears kind of a loud noise. And he looks up and standing in his doorway, his bedroom doorway, is this ghost presumably um, still looking very messed up and he basically says come with me Lewis doesn't he thinks he's dreaming he doesn't know what's going on Um, and he says something about I don't like this dream and the guy says what makes you think it's a dream well Pascal leads Lewis down the path which is now of course all misty and scary Um, (laughs) it's all very dramatic to the pet cemetery (laughs) Lewis is like why are you here what are you doing and he says I want to help you because you tried to help me and they get down to the pet cemetery this is the place where the dead speak I want to wake up I want to wake up that's all don't go on doc no matter how much you may feel you have to do not go on to the place where the dead walk. Um, and then he kind of, I feel like, 
floats up into the air and starts to like disappear and mm-hmm. um, his voiceover continues and he says the barrier was not meant to be crossed the ground beyond is sour and so and he points to this corner of the cemetery where it's like a big giant pile of brush essentially yeah. uh, leave um, branches and things it almost looks like it's intentionally been blocked off right um, Right. And so Lewis kind of falls to his knees and and just, you know, puts his hands to his face and says, I want to wake up. I want to wake up. Uh, And he does. Um, That's we we cut and he wakes up. He's kind of jarred awake in the morning. It's kind of one of those things where, oh, thank goodness. It was just a dream. Um, And then he throws the blankets off and his feet and the legs of his pajamas and the sheets and blankets are all covered in mud. So obviously he had actually gone out there. It's classic. Right. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) At this point, it's Thanksgiving time. The rest of the family, the two kids and the mom, are going to go visit the parents. But because the dad doesn't get along with the parents, he's going to stay back behind. Yeah, which I'm sure is helping matters. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think that was probably intentional, you know, on his part. He knows he's not well-liked, you know, from that side of the family. And I think, you know, to me, it just seemed like... This happens about every right. Year. You know, they go. To, she goes to her folks, and he does whatever. That's true. And and he says something like, "You know, I want you to have a good holiday. I don't right. want it to get messed up yeah. or whatever." I feel like we missed something important. Well, everybody's having dream, and I guess it's the we missed the Missy character. Missy is the their housekeeper. And honestly, this is a part you when you're looking at a book and you're looking at things to cut to make to streamline the film. This is a part that almost could have been cut. You know what's so funny? That it's because this subplot seems so superfluous and it's not in the book oh it's not in the book no are you kidding me the the character in the movie missy is an amalgamation of two characters in the book in the book judd has a wife oh that's uh, right who's alive yes and missy is just their housekeeper and she doesn't commit suicide um the only person who dies before people in the creed family start dying is is judd's wife she has a heart attack at some point and she doesn't die right away lewis is able to kind of nurse her back to health and they get her an ambulance and she's okay but some time goes by and she does die and that's what prompts the backstory of why rachel is so messed up about death and that's a good story. It is. I felt like this was a scene that was really kind of shoehorned in there as well. Rachel comes in and she's talking to her husband. I overheard the conversation you had with Ellie about death. And she said, you remember my sister. And he's like, oh yeah, she had spinal meningitis and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then she starts telling, I guess what she had never told him before, which was that she, as an eight-year-old girl, was solely in charge of taking care of her sister. And her sister was locked in the back room of the house essentially the family secret nobody i mean people had to know they were that they were there but they were trying to hide her or whatnot and she had to go in and feed the sister every day and we see this in flashback and it's interesting because uh not only does she have spinal meningitis but she looks like absolute death oh she's a monster Yeah. yeah really a monster and and of course this is probably also i guess when you're showing a dream sequence and this was probably a choice that you're showing the impression of the yeah, person's right, memory. Right. So probably in life we understand maybe she didn't look that bad, but in her this 8-year-old girl's memory, she looked like a monster. She's she's sawn, her skin is just stuck to her bones and her back is twisted. Twisted and almost the, the ribs and and her spinal column are almost breaking through the skin. Mm-hmm. It's really gross and she has to go in there and feed her. And this is really interesting where how she says that she was 
really glad when she died. And she was disturbed by that, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She goes in. She was the one who discovered when she was finally dead. Every single day up until that point, she was wondering, when is she going to die? When is she going to die? When is she going to die? When she did die, she started crying and ran out and talked to the neighbors. But she said, honestly, I think that the cries were laughter. Mm-hmm. And I feel guilty about that. So it it is some really complex exploration of the of death and the human side of death and suffering and this woman's been through it as a child so obviously now we know why she's uncomfortable with talking about death right well in this part of the movie you said dad you said you didn't remember the whole sister side plot right it's funny because (laughs) that is the part that really stood out to me um and you know after the whole theater experience i kept watching this movie you know i after and i saw my you know i showed my little sister and she was really freaked out by that part too the sister zelda is really scary i think Mm -hmm. um and and they want, you know, that's what they were going for. It's supposed to be a 13-year-old girl, which clearly this is not. No. And so I, what you're saying about it kind of being more Rachel's projection of what her sister was makes a lot of sense. Because really, they cast a man. Uh, Zelda, I was wondering yeah, that, actually. Zelda was played by a man to, to good effect. She's scary. That's that's one of the parts that I remember most <laughs> from this movie. Yeah, and <clears> you know, <throat> I don't know if, if this movie were made now, what, tw- almost 20 years later, if... That would be maybe particularly insensitive. Yeah, probably. Uh, to show this in, invalid. You'd want a little more sympathy for her, but instead she's really played up as a monster. Right. right. You know? and, and again, I think like kind of like what you said earlier, Todd, I mean, we're seeing it as the mom's memory. Mm-hmm. And that was her perception, you know, of the whole... I mean, it was monstrous, you know, to go into this room that's closed off from everybody, mm-hmm. that they just keep this girl in, and she, they never take her out, obviously. Right. Really, I don't think even talk about her, but she's the one that's responsible for going in and feeding her, and so that's where she gets her whole perception of sickness, death, you know, from this experience, and thinking, oh my God, how horrific... You know that is because she she probably doesn't understand right. you know uh, spinal meningitis or to me that's why it was such a kind of taboo subject right you know, in the family too yeah and on one hand you I mean I guess she's just never she's never gotten over it because you would think if some if she had had such a terrible traumatic experience and in introduction to death you would think that she would want to make an effort to, to introduce it, her own children to it in a way that possibly. wasn't right that wasn't going to be so scary but I guess she just hasn't gotten over it well it doesn't give you a lot of sympathy for her parents either no no so no not at all there's no sympathy for her parents through this whole thing right (laughs) anyway while they're gone for thanksgiving church the cat gets hit in the highway and killed and uh it ends up on judd's lawn judd calls lewis and says you better get over here the cat is dead it's you know it is their cat it's clearly dead he pull when he pulls it up off the ground you know you can hear it peeling up out of the out of the frost pretty cool scene actually yeah Yeah. and and good effects it actually made me a little uncomfortable there's a couple of different effects with dead and dying cats and they look really real <laughs> so I was like, man, I hope these were just really well trained cats. I don't know. Hey, I have to say that cat is probably one of the best actors in this. Oh film. yeah, I don't yeah. know how they did that. But Very I'm, menacing. I've had to work with animals before. Um, I had to work with a, a dog on film, and and it was it was a full day affair just to get it to do two or three things. And the things that this cat did were either absolute luck they were able to get these shots, or it was just super well trained. Right. <laughs> well, and they say you know the the old adage, never work with animals or children and you've got them both here yeah and both great performers i would say that the little boy i mean this kid 
can you even really call it acting when the kid is probably hardly aware of what's going on around him? But Miko Hughes, he's really good and effective in this movie too. He he's good. He's so cute. Like one of the cutest kids you've ever seen in the beginning. And then at the end when things get scary, he's a really effectively creepy too. Uh, and Miko Hughes, you know, he's still around. I think he still works every once in a while, but he's a small person. He's a, he's he a, is. he's a short little guy. Well, they go through the film and they're, they're always either holding him or they get off the plane, immediately put him in a stroller. It seems like he's on his feet very little, mm-hmm. which I think was intentional because when he does get on his feet now and he's walking around, it seems a little more supernatural at the end. Right, right. Right. So the cat's dead. Lewis says, well, you know, Ellie's going to be really upset. And Judd says, well, maybe we'll take a walk and bring, bring the cat. So they go down to the pet cemetery and Judd says, well, where do I, where do I dig? Do I just pick the outermost circle? And he says, no, we're not stopping here. We're going on. We're going up over that that." big thing of debris. You know, the place the ghost warned you away from. Right, right. that exact right. place. He said, stay away from, stay away from there. Judd says, uh, you know, he's, Lewis says, well, we can't get over that. It's crazy. We'll break our necks. He says, oh, no, I've been over there a couple times. Just follow me. Make sure you step in the right places and everything will and be don't all right. don't stop. Don't stop and don't look back. Don't look down. Don't look down, right. Judd gets up there fine. And, and this is kind of a funny scene. <laughs> Because they're marching forever. They're marching forever, and Judd keeps saying, almost there now. And <laughs> the thing is, so far away, you you almost wonder, well, there had to be an alternate route to get to this place. Right. I mean, it can't be that. Couldn't we drive around? <laughs> um, but anyway, so they're going for a really long time. And this was one of the parts that was different um, in the book. And I think that it was just probably for budget. You know, they, they probably didn't have the budget for the effects. But I remember in the book when they were walking through the forest, it was almost like an otherworldly place. Like mm. there was um, there was mist up to their knees. They couldn't see their feet. Lewis couldn't really, like the ground was squishy. He couldn't really see what he was stepping on. And they kept hearing these weird noises uh, around them. And there's some suggestion of that. There's a weird kind of shrieking noise noise, big rumbling noise, and Lewis said, what was that? And Judd's like, oh, just a loon, <laughs> which is clearly a lie. And you can tell that Judd, he knows something weird is going on. Um, but they finally make their way up to what turns out to be this big, ancient burial ground. And Judd tells uh, Lewis that it's an old Micmac burial ground. And this is where you're going to bury the cat. And, uh, you got to do it yourself. You got to do I mean, it yourself. I'd help you, but you got to bury your own. You got to bury your own. <laughs> Which is a line I'm going to use from now on. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Just with little modifications. Like, uh, I'd help you with the dishes, but you got to wash your own. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Let me know how that turns out. <laughs> They go back home. The phone's ringing. Uh, uh, Lewis tries to get to it. He doesn't get to it in time. And um, Judd's chasing up behind him and says, when you do talk to him, not a word about w- what we've done here tonight. And and Lewis says, well, what did we do here tonight? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I don't remember what the response well, is. Well, there was- but you almost know there's some, something's really strange about that that particular place of course it, it you know it looks like an indian burial ground or whatever and he's got this like mining tool that's yeah, right like track, a pickaxe and he hits the ground and he sees sparks <laughs> come up and he's like man could you have picked a better spot right right bury? and then the next thing he's kind of burying but well, well wow, yeah he's burying ground 
He's burying him, and it looks like it's like three hours later because mm-hmm. the right. sun has since set and it's right. dark out. Right, it's not like he's digging a six foot grade. He has to dig a hole big enough for a cat. Well, to it ends up being what like a four foot deep hole. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't terribly impressive right. when it was done. I think he pr- pushed some a, a small pile of dirt over, and it was finished. Yeah, like that's what you've been working on this whole time. <laughs> well, I guess he broke it up really well. Well, but what he does say to him is, uh, "Women are supposed to be the ones who are going to keep the secrets." But any woman who knows that dog will tell you she's never seen into a man's heart. The soil of a man's heart, Lewis, is stonier. Like the soil up there in the old McMack burying ground. And of course that strikes a chord with him because that's exactly what the what the kid what the, the dead kid, kid, the Pascal. Dead kid said to him. Right. So it, there are a lot of moments in this where there are these reminders, these wraparound moments uh, right. where the dreams are coming to life or the visions are coming. Uh, That's another thing. Ellie, the daughter, keeps having the. She calls the dad and she's worried about the cat. And he says, Well, why are you worried? She says, Well, I had a dream that it got hit in the road. I've read interviews with Stephen King um, who has said that Ellie in Pet Cemetery probably has the shine. Mm. Um, like Danny Boyd in uh, in in The Shining, um, there's something special about her where she really is kind of having these premonitions, and she has them throughout, and they're always right. Yeah. And the ghost Pascal is able to communicate directly with her. He seems like he can kind of influence other people, but he can like talk specifically to her. So there's something special about her too, which is kind of interesting. You know, King's books. They all tie in together. They kind of do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is fun when you you know see those ties. But well, and in a book, it comes across really well. I felt like in the movie, it came across as a cheap device. Again, I love the story. I I do enjoy the movie for the most parts, but I think it, it can come across as kind of schlocky. Yeah, uh, and I think that's one of the ele- elements that are a little schlocky is that every time it seems like they're it seems like they're being driven by dreams. Many of the cases. Well, and it's interesting you say that in the book it comes across better. I'm a huge, huge Stephen King fan, but sometimes I think that he needs to relinquish a little bit of control when it comes to the movies based on his books. Because when he's very much involved, he's always really adamant that it stick really close to the source material. And I understand that. You know, you want to protect the integrity of your art. I I get that. But experienced good directors know what they're doing and they know what plays well on the screen as opposed to on the page and uh, Stephen King wrote this screenplay himself he was very much a part of the production he has a cameo in the movie as Mm -hmm. a priest at a cemetery he was on set almost every day because they filmed it on location in the same area where the book was set. and oh, so it really? Was, yeah, it was only a 20-mile drive from Stephen King's house. A very personal um, movie for him. Right. So he was there a lot. But I, I think that the movie suffers a little bit from it trying to stick so closely to the source material. I think if they had maybe played up some more cinematic elements um, that it could have been a little bit stronger. Well, the other schlocky thing, and, and we kind of brushed over it, and it's worth brushing over, is Missy at some point in here commits suicide. Right. She's complaining about stomach pain, and the doctor's like, oh, I can have it checked out. And she's like, no, that's okay. Uh, it'll go away. It always does. And then we have, basically, I think at this point in the movie, probably, there's a scrawled note, I have can't, I mean, it's... It's almost bludgeoning in its yeah. in its uh, in its directness. It's just this note that she writes. I'm really sorry. I have cancer or something. Right. And then she goes into I don't know. Is it even the basement? I of don't their know own if it's home? there. I don't know. Who wherever it is, and and she hangs herself. And 
it's like an excuse to get another death in here so it, they can re- talk about that's more exactly death. and what it was is. and it was that's probably why I forgot about it yeah you know one of the things because I thought where does that really play in it, it does you know to the to the whole picture because he's a doctor he knows she's sick but he does tell her you know hey I'd be glad to take a look mm-hmm. and and see what's wrong but no, she the next thing you know the pain's too strong or the pain's too bad and and she kills herself. Yeah. And that's it. It's clunky. Yeah. It's clunky. Well, and it's also clunky because we see so very little of her. Yeah. Uh, we see her in the beginning. We see maybe two more shots of her. And you don't care. You don't she care. Dies. She does. Like, okay, is this supposed to have an effect on us? Because it doesn't. <laughs> you can't even imagine it has that much of an effect on the family. They've only been there for what, right. like, like a yeah. month or so? Right. <laughs> well, Lewis wakes up the next morning and the cat's back. Yep. Um, and it's glowing eyes. It's got glowing <laughs> eyes, and it's got a different demeanor. This is a really sweet, loving cat before, and now it's uh, a hissy, snarly cat. Lewis goes over to talk to Judd, and Judd explains. He says, "I've been up. I have been up there before. Um, when I was a kid, I had a dog. I took it up there and buried it up there. And it came back, but it wasn't the same dog." And he says, uh, "You know, we get a scene, another flashback scene, where we see this gruesome dog come back, and it seems vicious, and it's snarling and barking and whatnot." Again, another place where the book and the movies differ a little bit, because in the book, that when the pets came back. They were different and generally unpleasant, and people didn't really want to be around them anymore, but they stayed around. Um, Judd says in the movie, when he when my dog died peacefully in his sleep that same night, I buried him in the regular pet cemetery. That's not the way it happened in the book. In the book, the dog lived for a long time after that. Um, and it, He was different, and there was something off about him, and he stunk, and no matter how many baths Judd gave him, they couldn't get the, the stench the off. The smell, or smell. <clears throat> right, but it stuck around. Like here in the movie, that flashback scene that we get makes the dog seem almost rabid uh-huh. I mean, it's b- bloody and it's barking at everything and it seems like you know he had to put him you said he when he died peacefully in his sleep that's what he said oh, in the movie yeah, that's what he said. Mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> just the way it's presented it begs the question why would you choose to stir the pot by having this guy bury his own cat in the cemetery when you've done it to your own pet you know what it does to your own pet wouldn't it be better just to give this child the experience of death in what is actually a Pretty safe way. I right. mean, if you're going to... I'm not a parent. Jim, you are. But, I mean, if you're going to expose your kid to, to death for the very first time, wouldn't it be better to be a goldfish or a cat than, like, right. you know, a relative or right. somebody they're really close to? Definitely. And, and, yeah, you see that. That's the difference. You know, the mom's first experience at death was, of course, her sister. You know, she'd been taken... And now her daughter's first experience is going to be with this cat. But... The funny thing that I saw in the movie, and I still haven't figured out why they did that or what was the point, when the cat comes back, well, first the guy gets hit by the car, and he dies, and then he comes back, and when he comes back, I mean, he's he looks all messed up. He's yeah, been hit right. by a car, and and you, and you can still see brains hanging out. I mean, mm-hmm. he's pretty grotesque. When the cat comes back, you can't tell a thing's wrong with the oh, cat. That's right. true. He got hit by a car. I mean, you can. He picks it up, and he's looking looking it over, and you can't really see anything wrong with the cat. But with the guy, you definitely can. Well, well, and everybody who comes back, back like, later, later right. you know, it still has their scar. It's know. a little inconsistent. A little I mean, bit. If, a little if, bit. if this cat had been hit by a semi on the road, it would have been... <laughs> Engage. Right. He Wasn't kind of, that bad. No. Now, I guess in theory, you know, Gage went to an undertaker, which again leads to oh, all kinds true. of unanswerable questions. That's so, right. <laughs> you know, the kid the kid was embalmed, you know, how is he going to come back? Um, well, <clears throat> the good thing they didn't cremate him where he'd have no options. Right. 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 <laughs> um, 
The family comes back. Ellie notices there's something different about the cat. It stinks. She doesn't want to be around it. The cat just hangs out as kind of menacing. And really, the next big event is the big tragic event. They just are having a very nice family picnic out in their lawn, and um, they're flying a kite, and uh, the dad... Everybody's happy. It's. I mean, it it looks like a postcard. (laughs) Yeah, it shows the big field behind them. Mm -hmm. They're flying the kite and saying, hey, there's no danger here. Right. No, really. You've got all this room. I I noticed for the first time tonight, I thought, you know, maybe you should have picked a day where the wind was blowing in the other direction. (laughs) 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 This post is a little bit of a risk, you know, taking a chance. Or maybe put up a fence and it might be something else, too. Um, But uh, Lewis and Gage are, you know, the others, and Judd is with them, they're sitting kind of in the background at a table and Gage and Lewis are kind of in the middle of the field and Gage takes the string and he's running with it for a little while. It's real, real cute. Eventually he drops it and everybody laughs and Lewis kind of turns around and is laughing with his family but now he's got his back to Gage and the spool with the string dislodges itself from some weeds and starts pulling towards the road and, and Gage starts going after it. Long story short, Lewis tries to catch him but he doesn't get there in time and he gets hit by, uh, Gage gets hit by a semi and, and he's dead, Yeah, obviously. That's pretty heartbreaking. And when I saw that the first time, of course Craig was only seven years older than Gage, <laughs> yeah. you know, at that time, but as a parent, I mean, it, it was so real thinking, okay, you look up and you see your kid running, he's quite a ways off. Mm-hmm. And you think, man, can I get to him in time? And that guy was running mm-hmm. just as fast as he could. And you think, oh, man, he's going to make it. And then he reaches, and you think, oh, he's going to get him. He reaches and then doesn't do it. I'm thinking, man, what worst thing could happen to a parent you know, than that? Be that close. You I know, was going to ask you about that because didn't that bothered me for a long time. Well, because something happened like that when I was a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, didn't... Uh, you had to go help somebody with a flat tire or something. You left me in the car. and It is horrifying. Brenda's sister was learning how to drive. Craig was probably Gage's age, I would guess, maybe a little bit older. And Brenda's folks lived out in the country. And um, and so she was taking her car driving just around the, the roads back behind their house and things like that. Brenda's and, Craig's mom. Right. Yeah. And this is her sister, Craig's, Barbara. Who her sister, Craig's aunt was learning how to drive. Well... I, I don't know why she'd been gone a long time or something, and we decided to go check on her. And so Craig and I went, and it wasn't far where we found her, and, and she was learning how to drive a clutch, and she'd stalled the car or, or something. The battery had died. But I pulled up behind her, and I get out and walked her car and talking to her about, hey, this is what you need to do or whatever. I'd left the car running, and Craig was in the car, which... Looking back, that's not, right. <laughs> that's not the best thing to do. But I look back, and Greg was up on this hill, and I'd run down the hill to to where Barb was, and here comes the car with with Craig. Craig's got his hands on the seat, the front seat, just hanging on, and the car's coming towards us, and so I take off running for the car and it starts veering towards this fence and there's a big field and down to a ditch and I think oh and so I'm running just as fast as I can to get there and it's going towards the fence and I get to the door of the fence and he hits the fence at the same time and it's barbed wire fence and that barbed wire just snaps and half and slices the side of my head wide open the car keeps on going Craig's yelling 
Um, but I mean, he wasn't screaming, you know, he just kind of, ah. <laughs> and, and it went down this great big hill and, and, and it stopped, you know, for it could have been a lot worse. And there's no doubt about that. But so, yeah, I had that experience. And that was obviously before we'd uh-huh. gone to that movie. So I, that's probably why that, that part, because I had that feeling where you, you're just in reach mm-hmm. where I could have jumped in or whatever and put the brake on and you miss it. You know, and, and you don't get that second chance. Well, I did, obviously, but he didn't. And so that that's probably, you know, look, I'm glad, Craig, you brought that up because that part really did bother me because he was so close to just grabbing that kid's shirt or whatever mm-hmm. and pulling him back. Yeah, and it's really sad. And so then they have the funeral, and everybody's devastated, of course. The the father-in-law, Rachel's dad, starts something with Lewis and, you know, punches him right at, right in front of the casket. They kind of scuffle a little bit. The casket falls. I mean, it's all it's all really sad. Yeah, that that bit there, I thought was a little silly. <laughs> yeah, but again, it comes right from the book. Does it? Yeah, it does. Wow. And, and actually, in the book, I think the body came out of the casket. And I think you're right, maybe. Wow. You know, we saw in the movie where the casket opened a little bit when you know when it was falling, but it actually in the book, it's rough. Yeah. They go home. Judd comes over because Judd knows. He can mm-hmm. tell right away that Lewis is thinking things that he shouldn't be thinking. He comes over and Lewis says, you know, I buried my son today, Judd. I'm tired. I just want to go to bed. And he says, I know you're thinking things that you shouldn't be thinking. And he says, you asked me before if anybody ever buried a person up there. And I told you no and I lied. And so then he tells the story of sometime right at the end of World War II, a soldier had been on his way home and he had been killed, a local boy. And his dad had been so devastated that he buried him up in the pet air well in the ancient in the Indian burial ground, and he came back and just like everybody everything else we've seen, it wasn't him. He was you know kind of zombified. Yeah, zombie basically. Yeah. It's a good way to describe it. Um, and again, you can see his injuries, mm-hmm. you know, from mm-hmm. the war or whatever. Yeah, you know, he's got his. I think. Well, he may have had a suit on, but I don't know if he had a uniform on. I think it was uniform or or whatever, but you can visibly see the injuries that he must have incurred that caused his death. Right, right. The lo- you know a local woman sees him wandering the street, and she goes to some of the guys in town and says, "This has got to be stopped. It's an abomination." (laughs) So they take a very extreme measure. Yeah, yeah, and and go to just burn the whole house down with people in it. With people in it. With the the dead in it. Yeah. Well, I think the mom was there, too. Maybe. And I don't know. I think maybe it was just the dad. But um, Now, I heard in the background, and maybe it was just, am I wrong about this? But it sounded an awful lot like Judd's voice. But Yeah. No, Judd was one of them. Okay. Yeah, and Judd yeah, was, was actually, he was the one, I mean, it's a different actor, obviously, but right, he was but the, the one who, he opened the door. He was the one that said, come on, come out, come out. Um, he's not your son anymore or something like that. Okay. But the guy won't come out. And then it kind of seems like the son is keeping him from going out. And this is a part of the movie, again, that I think is just kind of cheesy. Like the, the from inside, you can hear the son saying like, uh, hate living, love dead, or something like that. It's kind of mm. kind of goofball. But the whole lesson of Judd's story is sometimes dead is better. Uh, and that's what he tries to get him to believe. But uh, Lewis sends... But uh, then he also says, I feel like I'm responsible for your son's death. And when he first says it, I think it's before the story, and you're thinking, why? Well, what does he have to do with it? And uh, then afterwards, he says that it's the ground itself, the whatever mystical spirit or whatever it is that's making these things come across that is punishing uh, him for taking that action. 
uh, that he should never have shown him the cemetery, should never have um, told him to bury the cat there, and now it's coming back to sort of exact its revenge on the on the family. Well, and that's again, it's hinted at it in the movie, but it's it's played Much out more, more in the book. And you had said earlier. If Judd had that experience with his dog, why would he have a friend bury their cat out there? And in the book, it's more suggested that there's power out there in those woods um, and that it can influence people. And so that Judd may have been influenced to do that, even though it would have been going against his better judgment. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good point. And so he thinks... did know the bad experience, and that's twice uh-huh. that we get that message that, hey, that's no place to really bury. You know, that's bad ground, like mm-hmm. Pascal said, that's sour ground or whatever. And then Judd knows it. Judd knows it firsthand right. what happened. So, yeah, it's so kind he, of confusing how you th- would have thought it would have turned out different. Now. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's hinted in the movie, but in the book it's more so that... Uh, them doing that, them burying the cat kind of woke something or, or gave energy and then allowed it continued to be able to influence them even more. And so maybe Gage's death would have not happened had they not stirred up that energy or whatever. In the book, they talk about like the Wendigo, which is like an ancient Indian demon kind of thing. And that at some point, Lewis thinks he sees it out in the forest or whatever. We don't get it in the movie. But Lewis sends the rest of the family back to Chicago with the grandparents and um, as soon as Judd finds that out, because um, Rachel calls to check on Lewis because she can't get a hold of him, Judd knows what's going on, and we do too. Um, Lewis goes to the graveyard, he digs up Gage, and um, even though Judd is trying to stay awake to t- keep watch, he falls asleep. Again, in the book, it's suggested that whatever power is out there made him fall asleep so he mm. would miss it. And uh, Lewis goes and he buries Gage in the ancient burial ground at the same time back at the parents house uh, they're trying to reach him because ellen had another dream and again ellen's having all these dreams that are getting people worried and she says this guy pascal is talking to me that's right and the, and the mother's like pascal and she remembers the name but is she supposed to be putting two and two together did she actually know that kid's name she's putting two and two together because she does yeah oh, okay he, he, he it was in the paper i think oh um, that's okay and I guess, you know, Lewis may have told her too. But yeah, she puts two and two together. And Pascal himself is manifesting. Um, he pro- he's not appearing directly to the to her, but he's suggesting thoughts into her head. And then when she goes to the airport uh, to get the plane out, there's supposedly no... Well, she gets right, right on, and he's slightly holding the door open mm-hmm. to give her the extra seconds she needs. And when she needs to get a car, he's suggesting to the car keeper, who, which I thought I was super corny. I'm sorry. It's been very busy. I really don't have anything. What about the Aries K? The one with the scratch on its side? I do have an Aries K. <laughs> <laughs> Like the Manchurian candidate or something like that. (laughs) So there's this race for her to get back. Uh, But, of course, you know, the damage has been done. Yeah, and Pascal, you know, she keeps running into problems. She has a flat tire. Pascal's saying, it's trying to keep you away. It's trying to keep you away. So she's determined to get there. She eventually ends up hitching a ride, ironically, in one of the same trucks that, and not just any old big truck, but from the same company. Like, it's an identical truck. (laughs) <laughs> with the number number 666 six, six. on it. <clears throat> um, but she uh, she gets back. But before she gets back, 
Gage comes back and we see him in silhouette and this was a part that I thought that they did really well from the book um, uh, you know Gage you, you see his feet you don't get the reveal of what he looks like but you see his feet you see his silhouette and shadows and he goes and gets out of his dad's medical bag a scalpel and then uh, heads over to Judd's house. You know, it becomes very clear at this, and it's good that at least at this point we're we're starting to realize there's more than just the dead coming back to life, but there's some sort of power compelling yeah. them. Because otherwise, it would make no sense for this little kid to come back and immediately dive in and go for a scalpel. And see, if I remember correctly, and I may not, this is fuzzy in my head, but I feel like if I remember correctly, when Gage came back, he wasn't like zombie, like the other guy. I feel like he was conscious and spoke articulately mm. and not even in his child voice oh. um, but in a different voice so it's almost as though he had his body had been possessed by some other being maybe that wendigo or whatever you know spirit they talk about in the book but here uh when he comes back he still talks in little baby voice but they do a really good job of making it creepy yeah they, they take the cute little giggles from the first part of the movie and I don't know, are they filtering it somehow? Seems like it gets tweaked a little bit to make it uh, evil. Of course, anytime, you know, in, in almost every horror movie, you can make it scary by putting some child's laugh in there. Right. You don't even right. need to filter right. it at all right. as long as you have creepy music behind it. Well, I, and I think the scary part, you know, may be coming from regardless of what the laughs sound like. You know, we know that this kid's yeah, dead. dead. <laughs> and he's laughing. You hear him laughing. And, and you know, it is the same voice, mm-hmm. you know, as he was when he was a kid. And, and looking at him, you really couldn't tell. Although he looked a little pale. Yeah. But you really couldn't tell he was dead. No, right. you couldn't. Now, was there um, a scar across his forehead? There was a scar it looked like it. forehead, it looked like, or, or something. Yeah, I mean, it just it looked like The Undertaker had done a good job. Yeah, yeah I guess that's the yeah. case. Well, and the fact, as I said earlier, the fact that he's toddling around, uh, he's got a little more energy here. He dives down at one point out of the attic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk yeah. about that. I mean, he clearly has, has more abilities than a kid that age right. would right. have. Right, right, definitely. Uh, you know, I think my one of my criticisms, and I think just like what you were saying, Craig, maybe sticking a little too close to the subject material, and there are things you can get across in a book that are very difficult to get across in the movie. This power behind them is one of them. If you had had a a counterpart to Pascal, if you had had some other creature or being or person who would also maybe be coming in here and and obviously visually influencing the bad things Mm -hmm. or or whispering, go there, do this or whatnot... And that's just off right, the top of my right, head, but right. something like that maybe would have made it a little clearer. I think I feel like it comes a little too late in the movie mm-hmm. that we realize that the ground or the area out there has a power of its own, which would have compelled Judd. Otherwise, it just leaves those questions like, well, why the hell did they do that in the first place? Well, and it's also, you know, so uh, the the kid Gage goes over to Judd's house and kind of toys with them, cat and mouse, um, and eventually we get to that part that freaked me out, where from underneath the bed he slices Judd's... Freaks uh, everybody out, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. He slices yeah, Judd's a- Achilles <laughs> heel, um, and then Judd falls, and he slices his face, and then he bites his jugular, and that comes across, I think, as way scarier in a book, in a movie, especially when you've got Fred Gwynn, who's probably about seven feet tall. <laughs> You're true. thinking, how is this two foot tall? And he had a knife in his hand. I don't know. He probably dropped the knife or whatever. I mean, yeah, you would fall if your Achilles healed, but you would still have use of your arms. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh absolutely. And, and, and in fact, the film makes it worse because it does that close up on him clutching the carpet uh, while his his uh, neck yeah, is being bitten. Been, he could have been yeah. grabbing the kid, turning <laughs> across the room or whatever. <laughs> 
Uh, it doesn't come across very well in the film. Well, and plus, of course, I mean, for a lot of that, they have to use a dummy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've, they've got that little kid doing some pretty creepy stuff. I mean, you yeah. you, you question his parents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they saw the dollar figures oh, in his yeah, future. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> good, cute kid, good actor. Um, but anyway, so he kills Judd, and then the mom arrives in the semi-truck. Meanwhile, Lewis is still asleep back at home. Uh, as soon as the... Well, there's a, a good line where Pascal says... He appears in the car in the truck and says, This is the end of the road for me. I can't go any further. You're on your own now. And she says, I'm sure everything will be fine. She says that to the trucker, who had also said, you know, whatever, goodbye or whatever. And um, Pascal says, I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm sure everything will be fine. I'm not. Closes the door. Um, as soon as she gets out, she hears the laughter. Well, first she hears Rachel, the the sister's voice, Zelda's voice. And then it turns into Gage's laughter. So she goes over there. And again, you know, it's, it's weird. It's never really explained how this happens. Like, it almost seems like uh, Judd's house kind of becomes her childhood house, or at least it's really reminiscent. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a painting of Zelda as a child that was in her parents' house that now I think appears in He's Judd's on the house. Wall, yeah. <clears throat> so there's obviously supernatural stuff going on, but it's not really explained. She walks into the back bedroom, which looks just like where Zelda's bedroom was in her childhood house, and there's Zelda, crouched down in a corner, dressed in the same blue outfit that she was in the painting, and that Gage will be, um, too, here in a minute. And she says, we're gonna get you, or, I mean, it's it's really creepy, you know, in her creepy voice, and she approach, you know, she runs up to her really fast. Rachel starts to swoon like she's gonna faint, and then you hear the baby laugh again. And when she looks down, there's Gage, and like my dad said... He looks a little different. He's pale, but it, he's still a cute little kid. Um, Doesn't he have a hat on too? With yeah. Like a cane? Top hat. Well, I. What was that all about? See, I always wondered about that when I was a kid. So I was watching more closely. I think that's what they buried him in. I think they buried him in one of those fancy schmancy. Yeah, I think so too. And that was the grandparents, because if you remember. When you saw all these expensive paintings mm -hmm. and oh. and things in the parents' house, her parents' house, they had kid with the top hat on. Right, and, and oh. it's really it's it's a real famous painting, but I can't remember what it is. Yeah, I don't know. But he's got the top hat on, and and that was the portrait in the her parents' house. Yeah, and so the kids just like hi, mommy, or, or something, and she. Uh, and again, like, wouldn't you be kind of horrified? I don't know. Again, I'm not a parent. I don't know what would be running through a person's mind. But he says, come here, I have something for you. And he pulls out the scalpel. And she just, you know, kind of... Tries to embrace him. Right. And then all this happens off screen at this point, right? We yeah. hear kind of a scream. Or, or mm -hmm. we hear a sound of a knife slashing. And the scream. Yeah. And then um, when... When... What's his name wakes up? When... Lewis. Lewis wakes up, uh, he goes over... Uh, he hears the sounds. Come, come over here, Daddy. Gage calls him. Gage, yeah. yeah. So he goes over and he goes upstairs and he comes across the body of Judd. He walks into the hallway and then the top attic door mm. flops open and down comes the mother who's kind of hanging, which mm -hmm. leads you to wonder how this little kid, Real, how the kid did that. <laughs> kid did do that. Um, okay, he's right. I don't know. Under Magic supernatural now. Supernatural right? power. Yeah, right. he dies down on him and. They have their struggle. Again, like you said, how he, he could, same kid, took on a seven-foot guy. Yeah. yeah <laughs> pretty much. But, yeah, but, that's the that extra power. But Dad Dad went over there with the intent of putting an end to it all. So he had, he actually syringed the cat out in front with some 
for some kind of poison, I guess, and he had another one. Actually, he had a couple mm-hmm. uh, for his son, and when his son comes towards him to attack, he stabs it into his neck. I think, obviously, in the book, this comes across... I mean, it's heartbreaking. He's basically... He lost his kid once, and now he has to mm-hmm. be the one to kill him a second time. Terrible, terrible, very big emotional stuff. Boy, it still comes across as a little schlocky in the movie. A little bit, except for... I'm so impressed with Miko Hughes' performance. I mean, it's, it's really short, and I'm sure they did a million takes um, with, with you know him being so little. But that him getting the syringe and his face being angry and then kind of softening a little bit. And tears coming down his face, you mm. know, too, during that. And it's almost like, why, Daddy, why? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, and then he walks away and that, oh, that no fair, no, yeah, no fair. fair. <laughs> uh, it, I don't know, it gets me. And it's, yeah. it's, all, it's all to the credit of that kid, the performance. Oh, definitely. And definitely. then, you know, there, he, he kind of stumbles down the hall and he stumbles backwards and, you know, falls against the wall. <sighs> I get what you're saying, and it's totally a little schlocky, especially because for a good part of the time when they're struggling, it's clearly a dummy, you know, a a tiny dummy that this guy's trying to (laughs) believably struggle with. So I get what you mean, but that kid saves it for me. Okay, I didn't see that. He did at the end. But again, like Todd was saying, well, there's, there's two things that I'm questioning. She gets home, the mom gets home, pulls up, and she starts going in the house, but then she hears her sister's voice. I didn't know whose voice it was until you just said it, but that you're right. It was sister's voice. Would she really go across the street? Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> right in front of her home? I know. I thought the same um, thing. Without going in and seeing and checking on her husband. Yeah. First, that's why she came back so quick for it. Right. But she goes over there anyway. Now, she didn't know any of this. Anything. No. Anything. So, when she sees Gage... <laughs> I'm thinking, what? I mean, her reaction yeah. just pretty much is holding her arms out. And, yeah. But rally, you see a kid that you think's dead. Well, yeah, with you don't know what's going on. <laughs> what's going on? I mean, you don't know any story about the pet cemetery or the special. Plus, you've cemetery. just been horrified by this vision of your sister yeah. just a second yeah. ago, which apparently you didn't think was real. I guess uh, you know. Yeah. Um, well, the, to be honest, the story's full of holes. I mean, um, how, how does what does this guy? You know, what does Lewis think is going to happen? You know, even if Gage came back and was just his old self again, you know, yeah, you got like, some to do. Just kidding. He wasn't really dead. It was all a big trick on you. Like it, do, it doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah. but I can I can see that. Um, I the, I can believe that. You know, because especially when he was that close to saving him. As a parent, if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, let's just take him. We can bury him over in this cemetery, and and he'll come back," I think as a parent, you would do anything. Yeah, and say, "Well, even if he is a little weird, you know, yeah. or whatever, or smells like dirt, or or whatever, hey, that's better than not having him." at all I can handle that well and you know. and the way that I interpret it especially in the movie is that Lewis really has just he's lost, lost his mind yeah. Yeah. oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He, the grief which you would I mean, yeah, yeah. and that's why after he kills Gage he then takes his wife down and starts across the street with her towards the cemetery why not Pascal comes back and says don't do this don't make it worse and he says well Gage was dead for a long time she's only been dead for a little bitty right. time she'll she, it, it'll be different and if I remember right, I, I think they talked a, quite a bit more about that in the book. There was this time lapse. I mean, the quicker you get them uh-huh. in the ground in that special cemetery, the better they're going to be. Right. And that was kind of a or key. the more like themselves the more or something. Be like yeah. themselves. But 
in the movie, uh, he takes her, you know, Pascal screams, no, don't do it, but then he disappears, and Lewis takes her up there, buries her, comes back home, waits, she shows back up, comes in, walking kind of sultrily <laughs> into the door, but again, she's all gross, like right. she's missing an eye, and like pus is like pouring out of her eye socket. <laughs> and, which was kind of odd, because... She hadn't been dead that long. Yeah. I mean, she was probably got buried the quickest. Like, what did he do to her? I think the suggestion was that he had eaten part of her face. Because remember, um, he sliced Judd's face, but then when when Lewis found Judd, the whole bottom part of his jaw had been torn off or chewed off. So I think that Gage had eaten part of her. Um, She's all gross, and this always, even when I was a kid, grossed me out. The pus is coming, like, right (laughs) over her lips. And then they start making out, and it's just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, that is the scene. Well, he'd be completely lost. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Between the uh, Achilles tendon getting cut and that scene that you just described, those are the two things that stuck with me in this right, right, right. From, from 1989 until now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're making out, she grabs a big old butcher knife off the table, and we cut to black, and we just hear his scream, and that's the end. Yeah. And then we get um, the credits and this song by the remote, and I didn't even realize this. I just heard the song go on. I'm like, oh, that's kind of one of those, again, one of those catchy rock tunes they always play at the end. And the, the song is like... Yeah. I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> when I got to the end of the credits, it's by the Ramones. Yeah, yeah. Like, what? Stephen King is a big fan of the Ramones, and he wanted to use their mu- their music in the movie, and he did. The the trucker is listening to the Ramones. She, he's then uh-huh. she listens to Sheila as a punk rocker Definitely. when he, when Gage gets hit, yeah. and so they were you know they were happy that Stephen King was a fan and that he wanted to oh, use sure, their music, sure. so they wrote this song for the movie. It's a very pointed song. It's very it eighty. Right. It's very eighty. And I thought he would end it with Crazy Love. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? That when, when they were kissing right there at the end. Of, that would have been good. Uh, right. Well, I still like this movie, and yeah. I've seen it dozens of times at this point. I don't think it's aging well. Hmm. Um, I think it's showing its age, and uh, there's really nothing special about the cinematography. I, I mean, it, it's it's adequate, but it just feels like good television it's cinematography. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like it, like The Walking Dead or, or something. You know, you've got the outdoor settings, and and you know they've, they've clearly got a budget and there's good scope, but there's just really nothing noteworthy uh, about it. Some of the casting, I, I like. I said the mom, I not. Real huge she's fan. She's a of. real famous star. Her name is Denise Crosby. I don't know yeah. what else she's been in, but you're she's right. Been she's very stuff. recognizable, especially from that time period. Yeah, and it's not that I have anything against her personally, Denise. I'm sure you're listening. Yeah. Um, I just don't think it was a great casting choice. Um, the dad was played by Dale Mid Midkiff, I think. Again, another really recognizable mm-hmm. face. I, I can't really peg anything else specifically that he's been in, but really recognizable. Mm-hmm. That role was intended for Bruce Campbell. Really? That would have made it a different movie, uh, wouldn't it? It sure would have. <laughs> Bruce Campbell's the guy from the Evil Dead oh, yeah. movies. Yeah. I'm not sure if it would have made it better. I don't I know. know. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. It would have been interesting to see. Yeah. Um, Ellie was played by a, a pair of twins. And again, you know, Fred, Fred Gwynn. I'm, I'm a big fan of his. But... He was great. I think he was one of the strongest characters in this film. He's my favorite. He's yeah. my favorite part of the movie. I think he's the reason that I keep yeah. watching it. Right, right. <clears throat> but it's passable. You know, I they of course 
they're always talking about potentially remaking everything. You know, this has come up to be remade multiple times. Wasn't there a sequel as well? Oh, a terrible, awful sequel. Really? Did you ever see it? No, I didn't. Oh, it's awful. Start Edward Furlong, if that tells you anything. Oh, is it like a direct-to-video kind of deal? I or? think it got a theatrical release, oh, but wow. it was it was not good. Well, as I remember, the movie wasn't critically reviewed very well, but it was a popular movie yeah. when it came out. I mean, I think everybody at the time anyway felt it was one of the better Stephen King adaptations I know that you know after Maximum Overdrive and junk like that right right um, I know that you know my friends would talk about it we watched it we had it on VHS and we'd pop it in every now and then we seem to enjoy it quite a bit yeah but you're right it's showing its age and uh, it's just a little overwrought at times a little overly dramatic it's a lot of that probably just has to do probably with what you said about just sticking a little too close to that source right. material. It's scary when you're real scary when you're reading it, you mm. kind of, because you have your own vis- visualization of of what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. And then to try to portray that, and you're we're talking nineteen what eighty nine eighty nine too. So yeah, yeah. It gets inherently difficult to portray a movie that takes place largely and where, where the important stuff takes place largely in the minds of the characters. Mm-hmm. Right, and right. This is that kind of story, and um, you know, with The Shining, you he pulled it off beautifully. This just didn't well, see, have Stanley Kubrick. You know? I know, but again, see, it's that Stephen King thing. Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, and they did a crappy TV remake that Stephen King was really a big fan of. He's he's a genius as far as storytelling is concerned, but he might want to leave the filmmaking to the filmmakers. And it would be it would kind of be nice. Uh, I'd almost like to see. A, a remake because Stephen King got his, you know, he yeah. got his direct adaptation, and I, he was really pleased with it. Let somebody else have a go now and see see what they can see come what up they with. Could do. Yeah, because Stephen, like you said, he's one of my favorite authors. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, and his writing style is just unbelievable. But his acting, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he, it's kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock thing. You know, he's got to have his cameo uh-huh. appearance, but he's never any good. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's, there. yeah. there's the sore thumb. And you know that. And you know that. And he should know that, my mother. <laughs> and, and another interesting thing, this was, uh, I'm not going to be able to think of her name. I had it in my mind. Now I can't think of it. But uh, this was directed by a woman. And you don't really see very many no. female directors in horror at all. Um, so maybe that says something about the aesthetic, too. Again, I still like it. Oh, I, I watch it. You know, it pops up on TV and I watch it. It's a good movie. Uh, yeah, I, just, I like the concept. I don't know, you know, I don't know. Story. You know, I teach high school kids. I don't know if I could impress them with it. I kind of doubt it, but uh, I still like it. I still think it's a good movie, and I recommend. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. If you're a, a horror fiend, it's it's worth having under your belt. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode. This was a special episode for me. I got to hang out with my dad, drink a couple beers, eat a couple burgers. It's a good time. We'll be back uh, next week with something. I don't know what, but I with something. <laughs> but until then, uh, I'm Craig. I'm Todd. And I'm Jim. With... I appreciate the honor of working with these two guys. So, uh, it's superb. <laughs> the, the pleasure Your dad's was... got to say that. Yeah, the, the pleasure was all ours. <laughs> if you uh, are interested, you can find us on Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes. Um, We'd love to hear any feedback that uh, you have. So uh, we'll see you next time. We're two guys in a chainsaw.